0: Why to open up right with me this morning to the book of Galatians. We're going to jump right into our topic this morning, into our subject. I see little Acadia has found a new home. Wow. Praise the Lord. Thank you very much. Janine, I appreciate that. I know Camille does as well. So let's go to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Galatians 4. Last time we spent a little time pondering Christ's Incarnation. We pondered how he was born of a woman, born under the law. And we're going to now jump down to verse 19. Notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, and we read in verse 19. He says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone. For I have doubts about you. Paul has some very strong words to share now with the Galatian believers. He says, you know what, I wish I could be in person. I wish I could be present with you because I have some things to share with you that you may misinterpret as I'm writing in word. You know how that goes? Sometimes you write an email, you send a letter, you, you send a text message, and you can't quite figure out what the person is thinking because you can't see their nonverbal cues. I just had that experience this week. A gentleman and I were writing back and forth, and he ended up saying something, and I realized he totally misunderstood me. And I I tried to clarify. I said, you know, this is the limitations of email. You can't read someone's body language. You can't read their tone of voice. And so Paul is saying that very thing. I wish that I could be right there with you so that you can know that I am writing this in the spirit of love. It is, after all, Paul who says that we are to speak the truth in love. We learned that last night at our house for the Young Adult Bible Study. We are to speak the truth in love. And so Paul was worried that he was going to be misunderstood. And so he had to share firmly with those in Galatia, the churches there in Galatia, that he had doubts about them. That's pretty serious coming from this man of God. He says, I have doubts about you. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Again, he's writing to these people. We've heard it over and over and over again through the book of Galatians. He's writing to these people who are trying to earn salvation. They are trying to earn God's favor by following the rules. They are saying, oh, if we just do the certain rules, if we if we make sure that everyone is circumcised, then we can know that they'll, they're part of the in crowd. But he says, wait a minute, you people who are trying to follow the rules, just a minute, I have doubts about you. And then he goes on to verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. How many sons? Two sons. Who are the two sons, by the way? Isaac and Ishmael. Two sons who became the heirs and the... the, uh, Those whom these two religions that are major religions in the world have gone through, Isaac and Ishmael. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman who was Hagar, and the other by a free woman who was Sarah. But he who is of the bondwoman was born according to the what? Born according to the flesh. That's code word for Abraham was trying to do it on his own. Abraham was trying to earn his righteousness. He was trying to earn his own inheritance that we're going to look at here in a few seconds. So one was born according to the flesh, but the free woman through what? Through promise. Remember we learned a couple of weeks ago, I think it was probably two sermons ago, that when when Paul uses the word covenant, he also means promise. He uses these words interchangeably. So we see that Paul that Paul is saying that Abraham had another son, not through the flesh, not through his own efforts, but through promise. God made a promise. He made a covenant. He made an oath with Abraham. And then Paul goes on to say, Which things are what symbolic, for these are what? The two covenants. Now, I want to just share that some of our versions, in fact, most of them, if we don't have the New King James or the King James, merely say that these are two covenants. But if you have a New King James or a King James version, you would notice that there is the article present, the. And I believe... And there's been some debate back and forth that the article should be there. It should be present because as we will learn throughout the history of the world, there have only been two basic coven- covenants. Every other covenant that has ever been made has been based upon these two covenants. One is the old covenant and one is the new covenant. We're going to spend the next two weeks, discover- the next two sermons, discovering a little bit more about these two covenants. But we have to get it firmly implanted in our minds. You see, some, some Christians believe that God, during every age, makes a different covenant. There's you know, the covenant with David. There's the covenant with Moses. There's the covenant with Abraham. There's the covenant with every single generation, as it were. He makes a different covenant. But, it, but Paul teaches us here that there are actually only two covenants. And they're both seen in the life of Abraham. Now this may be kind of different for us because we usually think of the new covenant being after Jesus and the old covenant being in the Old Testament. But what Paul shows here is that there actually have always been two covenants and they're both based upon the experience that the person is having. Somebody can be having a new covenant experience yet be living during the Old Testament age. Well, somebody could be having an Old Covenant experience, but be living in the New Testament age. You say, Pastor, I don't get it. Well, let's go back to the book of Genesis with me. Go back to the book of Genesis. This is a very, very, very important topic that we are looking at this morning. It's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the question that we have to ask ourselves the next few weeks is, am I living in an old covenant experience or a new covenant experience? Again, some of you may be saying, Pastor, I don't understand. Well, Paul clearly shows us that uh, one person can at the same time time during his life, not the same time, but during his own lifetime can be either living in a new covenant experience or an old covenant experience. We're going to stay in the positive this morning. So we're going to look at Abraham's new covenant experience. And so we look to the book of Genesis chapter 15. Notice what Moses records here, this beautiful, beautiful story that he brings out in Genesis chapter 15. He says in 15 verse 1, after these things The word of the Lord came to Abram. That's who Abraham was. That was his name at this point. It says, The the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your what? Your exceedingly great reward. We need to pause right here for just a second because God tells Abraham, Listen, brother. I am your reward. I hear many times people like to talk a lot about the beautiful pearly gates and the streets of gold and all the goodies that they're going to get in heaven. But God says, "You know what? I am your reward. I am what you are going to be able to enjoy forever. Never mind the streets of gold. Never mind, never mind all the beautiful animals that you'll be able to play with. Never mind all the goodies that you're going to get in heaven. I am your reward. I." know that some people are in the Christian experience just so that they can get these benefits. I often like to ask people that if you got to heaven and you went through those pearly gates and you saw that that heaven was nothing but a vast wilderness of nothingness, would you feel like you were gypped? Wait a minute here, wait a minute. I was a Christian because I wanted all this beautiful stuff in heaven. That's not it. Jesus here in the Old Testament says to Abraham, I am your reward. A couple years ago, Camille and I had the privilege of going to a banquet down in Massachusetts at a place called Gillette Stadium. Any of you ever heard of Gillette Stadium? It's the home of the New England Patriots. And they were having a banquet there called Christian Athletes in Action. They were honoring some local athletes in the Boston area. So my dad, who has a, a, a radio program in Boston on at, at the Christian radio station. They gave him VIP tickets. And so Camille and I and one of my cousins and my dad, we all got to go to this banquet. And there were four New England Patriot players there that were being honored. And then there was uh, Dwight Evans, who used to play for the Red Sox. Some of you may recognize that name. And then there was a um, Red Sox radio announcer named Joe Castiglione. Anybody ever heard of Joe Castiglione? <laughs> Those who are longtime Red Sox radio listeners probably recognize that name. And so we got to go there early, and the athletes were there, and we got to hang out with them. We got to talk with them. And uh, just, you know, from here to Karen, I was just standing there. I was chatting up with these Patriot players and these, you know, Dwight Evans and especially Joe Castiglione. I grew up listening to his voice, and I still catch it every once in a while as I'm driving here and there. And I talked to Joe Castiglione for probably 10 or 15 minutes just, you know, like he was just a regular guy. And all these all these fellows were Christians. They were just down-to-earth, humble men. And I was really impressed with them. I know that uh, what really was eye-opening is there was a Patriots player named Kevin Falk. He's about this tall. You know, you see him on television. That guy is built like a house. My goodness. I went up and I put my arm on his shoulder and I said, hey, how you doing, Kevin? And we were talking. And he just seemed like a really nice nice gentleman. But they were there to honor... One of the Patriot players at the time, named Heath Evans, he was receiving this reward, this award. I'm sorry, and they had this big banquet hall there at Gillette Stadium, and they invited Heath Evans to come on up, and they, they, he had a time where he he gave a little talk for 20 minutes or so. There was three or four hundred people at this banquet. The food was uh, interesting; it was you know gourmet food that was being served, and I don't remember eating much of it. But we were we were sitting there and we listened to Heath Evans. And he was a running back for the Patriots. He now plays for the Saints, I believe. You know, that guy, he got up there, and he opened up his Bible. And he leaned over, and he just had his Bible open. And he said, you know what? He turned to John chapter 13, and he says, you know what impresses me so much about Christ is his humility. He said, wow, this, is, this man is tuned in to what God is all about. He says, you know, he is a humble, humble guy. And he went through the story about how Jesus washed his disciples' feet. But what caught my attention the most was Heath Evans said, You know what? I've been playing football my whole life. I've played, you know, Pop Warner high school. I've gone through it all. I've you know, he's been on Super Bowl teams. He said, But I can tell you that nothing in professional sports brings true satisfaction. Nothing. Nothing. He says, you know, I've, I've gotten the awards. I've made the millions. This guy makes millions of dollars. He has any car he could ever want. He has everything. He says, but football leaves you feeling empty. And the only thing that truly brings satisfaction is a relationship with God. He said, wow, this man, this man knows the Lord. This man has experienced all the world could ever want to offer. And he knows the only thing that brings satisfaction is responding to God. You know, Abraham heard that God said, I am your reward. What What a promise. What a beautiful thought that God wanted to be Abraham's reward. But notice what we go on to say, Abraham is having this conversation with God. We're still in Genesis chapter 15. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Abraham wasn't quite there in his understanding. What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? You see, Abraham had to kind of clear his soul a little bit and say, No, Lord, my name is Abram. Abram means exalted father in Hebrew. So he said, wait a minute, God. God, I know you're going to be my reward, but here I am. My name means exalted father. And in those days, the names meant a lot. They meant exactly what, they're almost prophetic. He said, you call me exalted father, but I have no children. What's the deal here, God? That's a little funny, isn't it? So God... We pick it up in verse 3. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. Now picture this. Abraham lived almost 4,000 years ago, at a time when there was no city lights to interfere with the beautiful sky. You know, we go up every summer to Nova Scotia, and that's in the middle of nowhere, even more than up here in Bangor, Maine. And that's, you know, you go out there at night on the deck that we have, you look up at the stars, and it's like you can see, you can hardly see black space. There are so many stars. But imagine living back in Abraham's day where there were no city lights to interfere with that sky. And you look up, and Abraham looks up there, and God says, go ahead and start counting the stars. And so he starts going, one, two. And God says, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. You aren't even able to count those stars. There are so many. And he says, so shall your descendants be. Wow. Notice Abraham's response. Verse 6. And he did what? Believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Wow! God didn't say, okay, Abraham, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do in order to have this be fulfilled in your life. you got to go do this. you got to go do that. you got to help out here. you got to help out there. No, Abraham, all that he did was he responded with a believing heart. You know the word there for believe. You have it there in your study guide. Pull them out if you haven't done so already. But the Hebrew word there where it says he believed, the Hebrew word is a Hebrew word that all of us know. I can guarantee you that you know at least one Hebrew word. It is the word amen. That's literally what it says. It says that Abraham amened God. He amened. He said, wow, this is great. Praise the Lord. Wow, he responded with his whole heart, and 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 Moses records that it was that simple response of amen that God looked at Abraham and said, ah, this is my son, this is my man, This I know he's responding to me. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how God, all he's looking for from us is a response of yes. That's all he's looking for. It's almost like he doesn't see our outward behavior. He notices it, but he, he's looking with laser vision to our hearts and saying, is this person saying yes or no to me? That's all he's worried about. And he's able to justify us, to call us righteous based upon our response of the heart, because he knows that if we keep on saying amen to him, our hearts will, will be seen in our lives, in our actions, in our behavior. It may not be there right now, But God was able to justify Abraham. He was able to say, you are in good standing with me, because he saw his response of the heart. That's powerful. You see, many of us think that God is trying to make a contract with him. You've heard of this idea before, no doubt. We think, you know, covenant. We've heard that word covenant before. We think, oh, okay, this means that God is trying to make a contract. We do our part, and and God does his part. But here we see, notice what E.J. Wagner says, faith is the expecting the word of God to do what it says, and then depending upon that word to do what it says. So you and I, when we're living our lives, instead of trying to do our best and try to earn it and try to... And try to follow the rules. God invites us to respond to Him and say, ah yes, amen. I have faith. I'm responding with my whole heart to you and I'm going to depend upon you to fulfill it in my life. Amen. We're going to talk about this more next time, but we'll, we'll just touch upon it a little bit today. Again, we think God is trying to make a contract with us. You know how we have our, uh, Credit cards, or we have our mortgages, or we have whatever. There's a lot of fine print there. You know, we get to thinking that God has a lot of fine print. We think, ah, okay, you know, God will do His part. If I do my part, I'll, you know, I'll do my best and God will do the rest, right? That's what we think. We hear that being expressed many times before. Well, I'll just try real, real hard. And if I can't do it, well, then God will know that I'm trying my hardest. And then he'll, you know, have no choice but to bring me into a good relationship with himself. He'll have no choice but to forgive me. But we here we see that God is looking for a response from the heart. He's looking for us to just say amen to him. Notice these powerful words from a gentleman who's a pastor out of Michigan. He said, The biblical idea of God's covenant with humanity differs from that of human contracts. See, we think, again, we think God is trying to make a contract with us. How many of us, we try to make a contract with him, and so we get to thinking God's making a contract with us. Lord, if you will just help me pass this test, this just this once, I promise I'll go back to church and never stop going to church again. Lord, if you just get me out of this bind, I, I promise I'll never be bad again. See, we think God is trying to make a contract with us. What does he go on to say? In the latter, each party to the contract tries to gain the most benefits for the least cost. That's what happens, you know? I'm going to put in as little possible as I can, but try to get as much from the other person as I can. Is that how God operates? Now, is he thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the minimum, but I'm gonna hope to get the maximum from them? And we're thinking, you know what? I'm going to do just enough to be on God's side. This is just a little side note, but you know, sometimes we ask questions where we say, what's wrong with doing X, Y, Z? Have you ever heard this mentality before? What's wrong with watching this type of movie? And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that any time we start a question with the words, what's wrong with, we've betrayed the fact that we have a minimalist attitude. Do you understand what I'm saying? Essentially what we're saying is, what's the least that I can do and still get away with being a follower of Christ? What's wrong? Instead of saying, you know what, how can I maximize my time, my energies, we say, well, you know, I can still watch this movie and still get away with being, you know, a follower of Jesus. Because there's nothing really wrong with it. That's a whole topic for another day. But, you know, when our hearts are responding to Christ and we're saying amen to him, we're saying, what can I do for you, Lord? Not, what can I get away with? In the latter, each party to the contract tries to gain the most benefits for the least cost. Lord, what's the least least amount of effort that I can give to you? Christ. I love that quote I shared it the first Sabbath I was here. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and what? Die. Christ says, if you're going to follow after me, you're going to die. Not physically, but you are going to have to allow your ego your pride yourself your own interests you're going to have to allow it to die and Christ is trying to do that for us brothers and sisters and all we have to do is say amen as we as we ponder his great promises as we ponder his sacrifice our hearts are brought into union with him goes on to say the superior party threatens severe penalties should the inferior party fail to live up to the demands made of them Notice this one. And offers rewards for superior performance. That's how we're ingrained our whole lives, isn't it? If I measure up, then I'll get a reward. The better I do, the better my reward will be. Was God's attitude, however? But in God's covenant, notice, but in God's covenant with humankind, God promises, he does what? He promises his wholehearted reward. Whole-souled commitment, even to the death, if need be, for your human welfare. God says, I'm not giving up on you. You know what? You may, you may fail me. You may mess up over and over and over and over again, as Abraham does later on and even before this. But God says, I have made a whole-souled, wholehearted commitment to you, even to the death. Notice what Abraham goes on to say in Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Sorry, we skipped verse 7. Let's go back to verse 7. Verse 7, Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. So as well as promising uh, an inheritance, as well as promising a son, God tells Abraham that you are going to inherit this land. And Abraham says, Ah, God, hold on. How do I know that? Notice what... God goes on to say, verse 9, So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. God says, go out and get all these animals. And he invites Abraham to set up this ritual that they did in that culture to signify the ratification of a covenant. That's what's going on. Verse 10. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And then the vultures came down the carcasses. Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions, Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. We're going to return to this in a second. We're going to come back to that last verse. But I want you to look very quickly at three passages. I won't have you turn there. They're in your study guide. But they reflect this wholehearted commitment that God has made to us, this everlasting covenant. That's what it is. God, from the very beginning of time, has has made this everlasting commitment to us. By the way, it's very interesting. If you look up the words... Uh, covenant in Ellen White's writings, you will see over and over and over again that she actually uses the phrase covenant promise. She brings it out as well. God has made this covenant commitment promise to us. Notice very quickly again, we'll run through these, don't turn with them, but you have them there in your study guide. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgah to Bohem and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will, does anyone know? I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. You see, God doesn't act as human beings act. He doesn't say, well, you've done something wrong to me. I'm going to take my ball and go home. That's it. We're not going to have a friendship anymore. We're not going to have a relationship. God says, I will never break my covenant. I will never end my commitment to you. See, God's covenant is not like a contract, friends. God is not asking us to sign in the dotted line. He's not asking us to make Him promises. He's saying, will you say amen to my promise to you? That's what He's asking us. Isaiah 54, verse 10. This passage is powerful. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be what? Be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. These were written during some of the most dark times in Israel's history. The book of Judges was one of the most despicable parts of Israel's history. And yet God says, I will never break my covenant with you. Isaiah was written during a time that was in warning to people who were about to go into captivity. But he says, my covenant with you shall never be removed. I am always committed to you. I am always looking out for your best interest. Notice Ezekiel 16, verse 60. Nevertheless, he's writing to people who are in captivity now. They're in exile. He says, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Perhaps the most poignant of all, we won't turn there, but go with me in your minds to the book of Hosea. You remember Hosea? Crazy little guy. First of the minor prophets. God tells Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. Do you remember that? He tells Hosea, go out and marry a prostitute. He says, for you, Israel, have committed prostitution. You have committed adultery against me. But I want you, Hosea, to go out and marry a prostitute showing my commitment to you. Even when you are committing adultery, even when you are turning your back on me, I am still committed to you. So Hosea goes out and he marries this woman named Gomer. I, I think she probably had the card, the deck stacked against her from the beginning with a name like Gomer. But, but he goes out and marries Gomer. And guess what Gomer does? She goes away from him and commits adultery against him. And what does God tell Hosea to do a second time? He says, go and get her back. Go and get her back because I too am committed to you. I will never give up on you. I have made a commitment towards you from the very beginning of time. I have made an everlasting covenant with my people. I have made an everlasting covenant with this world that I will never give up on you. I will always be committed to you. Even if you turn your back on me You say, Pastor, wait a minute, does that mean everyone's going to be saved in the end? Well, sometime God will have to say, you know what? You've told me enough that you don't want anything to do with me. And even still, out of my love, I'm going to have to give you up. Because that's your choice. You've said, I'm going to... I, I don't want it. We At some point, people are going to seal their anger and hatred towards God. And he's going to say, you know what, I'm never giving up on you. But I'm not going to force you to love me. So he's going to give them over. Back in Genesis chapter 15, we see this... This idea in verse 17. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. You say, well, what in the world does this mean? Well, in their covenant treaties of those days, listen to me. In that time, when some two people made a covenant, This is the ritual they would perform, and usually what would happen is the inferior party would walk between these animals that were torn apart. So the person who is in the inferior position would walk through those pieces of animals, and what they were saying was, let this be done unto me if I do not fulfill my end of the covenant if I do not fulfill my end of the contract. So the inferior party did that. So if I'm taking a loan out from a bank, I would be the one walking through those animals saying, if I don't pay up my loan off, this is what should happen to me. I'm, I'm needing to be torn apart, like these animals have been torn apart. But who is it in verse 17 that goes through those animals? Did you notice? It was a... Burning torch and a smoking oven. Did Abraham walk through those? It was God himself. It was God himself. We say, well, Pastor, why only two? Why not three? Why not one? I mean, there's a Trinity. There's one God. Why two? It seems to me right here we see a picture of the cross where God the Father was torn away from his son Jesus. They were literally torn apart in dying commitment to this world. This is what the heart of God is all about. This is what he's saying to us. I am in. I am all in. I'm I'm not turning my back on you. I am willing to even go to the cross. That's how committed I am to you. I am willing to give up myself. Even if you are the one that breaks the, the covenant, even if you're the one who turns your back, I'm still committed to you. I want to end with two stories. <coughs> one is from, from the book by Philip Yancey called Prayer. It doesn't make any difference, and it's a powerful little story that I came across. You have it there in your study guide. Notice what Philip Yancey shares in this book. He said, I will never forget sitting in the bedroom of a tiny house in Columbia, South Carolina, watching Robertson McGWilkin feed homemade soup to his wife, spoonful by spoonful, laughing, talking to her, stroking her cheek, wiping off the spilled food. She could still raise one arm and wave it, though she made no sounds and showed no sign of recognizing her husband of 40 years. McGwilkin had resigned as president of a Christian college to care for Muriel, a teacher and media personality in her own right, before the onset of Alzheimer's disease. It's a terrible disease to have. My grandmother passed away last year. She had Alzheimer's. Here, here's this college president quitting his job to care for his wife. For 20 years, how many? 20 years he took on that responsibility canceling most speaking engagements and interrupting his own projects to remain available to her. Why? Notice what he said. I took a vow before God, he said, in sickness and in health. Isn't this what love is all about? Here's a guy who could have you know, he could have gone all around the world, flying here and there, speaking here and there, getting more and more notoriety. And he, for 20 years, he sat there beside a woman who didn't even recognize him, didn't even know who he was. He said, I have made a commitment to her. That's the vow that I took. I was sharing these thoughts last year at the New York camp meeting. I was speaking for the night meetings, And there was a young lady after one of the meetings who was all torn up. She was just sobbing. I think it was probably about halfway through the week. And she was just sobbing. I got off the platform and I came down, and I had seen her throughout the week because she had been in the meetings and she had gone to the seminar I was sharing. And she was just sobbing. I said, Carrie Ann, what's the matter? She said, is what you're saying true? Are you you being honest with me? Is this really, really true? I said, well, yes, of course. Of course. She said, are you telling me that God never gives up on me? Are you telling me that God loves me? Are you telling me that he has ever committed to me? I said, yes, absolutely. She said, I can't believe that. I cannot believe that. (coughs) She goes, I, are you serious? I said, absolutely. Then she started to tell me about how she gets very, very angry with herself. She says, you know, I get so angry with myself, I start slitting my wrists, cutting them all up. She showed me her wrists. She I, I get so angry. You know, I can't believe that God would still... Love and be committed to me, even when I do that to myself. I can't believe it. So, Carrie, and it's the truth. It's the truth. God is committed to you. He has your well-being as his top priority. He's never going to give up on you. She She couldn't accept it. And then finally, I kind of started seeing the truth, the reality, make way into her mind. And her spirit lifted a little bit, and throughout the rest of the week, I could see that she was coming to terms with that truth more and more. That God was committed to her. He had made promises to her, no matter what she did. Now, some of us say, well, Pastor, what about obedience? Does that mean we just run wild without worrying about obedience? Well, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But God knows... That when our hearts say amen to him, the obedience will come. The obedience will be brought because we're saying, Lord, I am so appreciative of your commitment to me, your everlasting commitment. And that's all Abraham did. At that point, he had not not lifted his finger in one act of obedience. But guess what? There can be no more obedient thing to do than to simply say amen to God. That's what all obedience boils down to. That is the premier, the prime obedience that God wants is for us to say amen. Lord, so let it be. You have made a commitment to me. You are going to see this through. You are going to make sure that I enjoy all these promises. You are going to fulfill your righteousness in my life. And God says, will you just say amen to me? That's all he's asking. Just say amen. Just allow your heart to respond to his loving kindness. Because great is his faith and faithfulness.